Well, in all fairness, does this have anything to do with Planet of the Apes? No, which is why it's going to get edited, hopefully. There was a podcast called the Sequel Cast. They talked about movies. And they talked about something else called boobies. The Sequel Cast. It's the Sequel Cast. Hello and welcome to the Sequel Cast. This is a podcast where we talk about movie franchises one movie at a time. We are currently starting a new um, cycle of movies, starting with the original Planet of the Apes, released in 1968. By 20th Century Fox. It was directed by Franklin Schaffner, produced by Arthur P. Jacobs, who also produced Dr. Doolittle, and written by Michael Wilson and Rod Serling of the Twilight Zone fame, based on the novel by Pierre Boulet. I'm your host, uh, Uncle Milkshake, and with me is Thrasher. Hello. And a certain special ape. Uh, no, actually, I'm Ulysses Moreau. Oh, Ulysses Moreau. Hello. Hey, now, the Planet of the Apes franchise will cover over the next series of episodes, but there's, um, suffice to say, there's five films in total in the main franchise, and then there was a, I don't know if you'd even call it a remake, but a reboot. A horrible cash-in. Let's call it a horrible cash-in. Yeah, we'll talk about that when we get to that episode uh, several weeks down the line, but it's a franchise, and there's even rumors they might even do a new uh, Planet of the Apes reboot, sort of focusing on the plot line from, um, is it Slave Revolt of the Apes? No, what's that called? No, no, no. Conquest. Planet of the Apes? No, no, I'm sorry. Conquest, you're right, yeah, Conquest of the Apes. Conquest. But anyway, rumors are rumors, so, um... I just want to start off, can we, like, we talked about, you said Rod Serling? Yes. I was just reading the tagline, and the tagline reads... Like something from the Twilight Zone. What is the tagline? Somewhere in the universe there must be something better than man. In a matter of time, an astronaut will link to the centuries and find the answer. He may find the most terrifying one of all on the planet where apes are the rulers and man the beast. Turns out it's man. <laughs> <laughs> but um, but no, it's like, this is Commander Taylor. All these things that they played when they were playing the uh, trailers for the movies, they read very much like something off a uh, Twilight Zone episode. Because the idea is very much like a Twilight Zone episode. It's a this mountain. Well, I'm gonna. I'll save that it's part. A, it's a role reversal. Yes, but I think it's a, it's a role reversal for a very important uh, part. It's a very important point that it's trying to make. But we'll talk about that as we talk about the film. Now, before we get into the movie, Jason, you mentioned you had uh, listened to the original novel on the audio tape. Oh, see, I was going to try and sound smart by saying that I had read the book. Okay, so let's say that... We can edit that out. Okay. We can start again. No, don't edit it because I think that's funnier that I have to, that I have to correct him. Um, <laughs> no, I did listen, and it's actually read very beautifully. Um, in the actual book, though, it's presented as if somebody has found a letter in a bottle that made it through space. Um... Because surely it didn't crash or burn up on re-entry from wherever it got tossed. But it, it, it reads like a person documenting what happened to them on a distant planet. Because in the book, again, not giving up the actual, um, I guess, the plot of the, the movie, but in the book, the planet of apes that he comes upon is a distant planet uh, in the uh, Betelgeuse system, and Betelgeuse. he actually calls it hmm? a Betelgeuse. A, a, the, the French pronounce it Betelgeuse. Oh, interesting. Yes, um, another difference thing. Uh, in the movie, it's a planet that's supposed to be in the belt of Orion, but in the book, it is a far-off distant planet that is nothing at all. It has the vegetation and some of the geography of an Earth-like planet. And it definitely has oxygen and water. It's very much like it. So he calls it uh, Soror, which is Latin for sister. So he calls the sister planet to Earth, which is uh, far, far away. But of course, him and his compatriots get there on a, on a spaceship that is able to 
go faster than the speed of light. And therefore, according to the theory, the time that they're on the ship is minuscule compared to the time that's actually passing on Earth, correct? Is that Take the account relativity? Yeah. Yeah, but the idea is that they're only on for like six months, but 700 years have passed on Earth. Right. The film opens with uh, Charlton Heston as astronaut Taylor. He's smoking a cigar on the bridge of the ship, kind of looking out at these uh, lens flares that go through space. And it's a space cigar. Is it a space well, cigar? We, we got a hoe. I, I will say this. Uh, I, I applaud the science in this movie, but I got to say, you... you it's damn stupid to be smoking a cigar, it, having an open flame in an encapsulated environment where there is going to be canisters of refined oxygen. Just no, because look, they talked about that. They talked about that, and thank you for smoking. They said uh, we can have uh, people smoking in space because all they have to say is one line: uh, "Thank God we invented this and that." Hey, you got space cigarettes. But, but they don't do that in this movie. No, but it's science fiction. You can have smokable things in science fiction. Also, keep in mind, in the late '60s, on airplanes, you could still smoke in airplanes. So, oh yeah, you could smoke. So you could smoke everywhere. Yeah, it's just that in, in a movie that has you know wonderful things to say about about evolutionary biology, and you know, and takes into account uh, relativity, uh, and, and presents, and with the exception of the gravity that's apparently on their craft, you know present space travel in, in a somewhat realistic fashion, it's just a real letdown that you've got an open flame on the starship. <laughs> well, he's smoking the cigar. He comes up as a real man-man. He's very... Well, he's Charlton Heston. Yeah, yeah, he's Charlton Heston. Yeah, he is the man. I mean, he is the toughest guy in Hollywood at that time who was doing movies like this. I don't think you would have gotten Jane uh, John Wayne in a monkey movie. I wonder how this was presented. You know, that would be interesting. Get your hands off me, the damn dirty It's just so... I mean, the producer on this was Arthur P. Jacobs, who produced the failed uh, Dr. Doolittle musical with Rex Harrison. See, failed back then, but as a child, I loved that movie. I enjoyed oh, it as a child, too. And I, um, I read a book on the making of Dr. Doolittle, and Rex Harrison would get drunk several times on the set and sing songs about his penis. No, but he, there was a funny story of how he sang songs about how large his penis was to the tune of songs from My Fair Lady. Jesus Christ. That's awesome. Yeah, that and was... he would have huge cock and balls. It oh, only God. happened on her face. Um, oh, God. Okay. No. Um, yeah. where, where did we pick up from? Where's the end yeah. point? So we've talked about a little bit of the beginning of the Planet of the Apes, but um, before we get a bit further into the movie, when was the first time either of you saw this film or even was aware of the franchise? Wow. Um, I'd say maybe I was 10 years old, Sci-Fi Channel. Uh, I, If I recall correctly, I was uh, 7 or maybe even 8 years old. Uh, my family had just moved into this new house, and it came on cable, and I just immediately fell in love with this film. This is one of my absolute favorite science fiction films. Uh, if it's on TV, I will stop everything to watch it. I it, it does it does everything right, and, and just, even as an eight year old, I was like dissecting the movie and trying to figure, oh, what's what's it saying? And, and it was a, a movie that's been with me, you know, for all my life since then. And every time I rewatch it, I'll pick out different things. See, one of the things that I loved as a kid was the make. I loved the prosthetics. I loved the idea that you could take a person and make them look like an ape. And I, as a kid, I was never really looking for the seams, but I was like thinking, these are the most amazing costumes on anything. And they talked in such a way where their voice wasn't completely muffled. Well, look at Roddy McDowell, who just gives an amazing performance in this. I mean, his voice is so familiar, and his expressions in that makeup. I love, I love Cornelius in this movie. Right, but I'm saying you still get movement from the jaw, and it's not 
a complete mask covering the face, at least maybe with the extras. But well, that that was one of the, the things when they had the, the makeup on. They learned how to do special exaggerated facial uh, expressions that would actually translate through the makeup. So that's how they would actually be able to like smile through the the chimp lips and and snarl and get so much expression uh, through the makeup and not just you know through the eyes and through their tonality. Then also look at how they like moved and how they stood. Ryan McDowell, he has a very chimpanzee type of gait. I mean, the first time I saw this movie was as the parody they did of The Simpsons as as a, as a musical bit on there. Stop the Planet of the Apes! I want to get off. Yeah. And oh, yeah. then when I was in high school on AMC, they did a documentary called Behind the Planet of the Apes which is a two-hour look at all the films in the series and how they were made. So wait, did you not know it was a real thing until you saw it behind the scenes? I, I was aware of the movie series, but for whatever reason, it was never something we happened to rent. I mean, my dad was more likely to rent, uh, like, a Tom Clancy, like, Patriot Games or something. You know, Planet of the Apes. You know, Moreau, it's interesting you mention that. Um, when that episode of The Simpsons with the stop of Planet of the Apes, I wanted to get off... Uh, Planet of the Apes musical aired uh, uh, the next week I uh, I was hanging out with my cousin Leah and that had somehow got brought up and and you know I was like oh man it was so great to see them making fun of that movie like, wait there's a real movie about a planet of the apes and a statue of liberty and, and but yeah and they're like her mind was blown something that funny could have been born out of something that something that actually existed Oh, you mentioned the statue. You blew it for anybody who's actually never I seen blew it. it. I blew the spoiler. You maniac. You finally did it. Blew it up. You <laughs> uh, can uh, listen to the sequel cast, but you might not like what you find. And, uh, I mean, also, I, I had seen the Planet of the Apes bit at the end of Spaceballs. Oh, yeah. It was an early exposure to that. But the... Anyone can somehow find, it might be on YouTube or something, the Behind the Planet of the Apes documentary. It's quite good. Uh, sadly, it focuses on the first film for over half of it and kind of rushes through the other ones. But um, it's a very interesting watch. And because of that, I got the, the movies on uh, videotape. Well, you know what else is great about that documentary? Not only does it cover the, the films, but it talks about how it was made, but it, they also show footage from a much earlier version of the film that was never completed. Because originally, Edward G. Robinson was going to was going to be one of the stars of the film, and they actually had a scene test of Edward G. Robinson in an early version of the ape makeup, uh, like performing a, a uh, performing a, a scene in a medical set. Uh, which I don't understand because he already kind of looked like an ape. Um, he looked very much like an orangutan, but you just have to give him a mane. Um, something about that man's head. Well, the makeup in that test shot, I've seen that scene too with Thrasher, is much rougher than what's in the movie. Oh, yes. Looks a bit more like an especially hairy man, but doesn't have the iconic jaw and mouth. But it's still great. I mean, I, I kept hearing stories about how, like, certain actors uh, couldn't eat, and they weren't allowed to take off the makeup. Um, now, they could, they, had, they could only eat certain foods. And, they had to be soft. Yeah, like, I, I want to say it was bananas. Craft Services was all bananas. Um, well, I could have been mad at acting. Yeah. But also, I heard that the actors in the ape suits or the gorilla suits, the ones in the orangutan suits, and oddly enough, the ones in the chimpanzee suits would all segregate themselves. They'd all eat with uh, like-dressed actors. Right, yeah. That ever happened on Star Trek? Maybe. I bet you it did. I bet you it did. Well, of course, in that one, segregation was the entire cast at one table and Shatner at the other. Oh, what's really funny is is that um, John Chambers, the guy who did the makeup for Planet of the Apes, did Spock's ears. Hmm. Oh, yeah, that's for the iconic uh, Spock ears. Speaking Both of them. another uh, Star Trek connection to this, the uh, composer of the Planet of the Apes film is Jerry Goldsmith, and Jerry Goldsmith did the score to uh, Star Trek, the motion picture, 
uh, the theme song to Star Trek The Next Generation and uh, music for a lot of the other Star Trek films. And what did you guys think else? of the music in this? Very experimental. Not well, what you'd expect. That was one of the big conscious choices they made. Uh, every, everything is an organic sound. Uh, everything is either like a natural wooden drum, a horn that you know makes its noise because of human breath. Everything is an organic sound. There is very little separating the sound the instrument makes from the musicians that's wielding it. And also, I could have sworn on a bunch of things. I heard ape calls. I heard screeches and hollers. Actually, I think that's a special horn that that you sometimes hear in the soundtrack. I believe that is a special horn. I'm not aware that any actual ape recordings were used. I want a monkey horn. I swear to God, it sounded just like a monkey. Ulysses, did you think the music worked in the film, or? Oh, absolutely. I mean, it, it definitely it has a heightened tension. It has, yeah, it's very much like the Star Trek music. Um, it has some like very, uh, um, I guess, very tension-filled, suspenseful music that helps when you're dealing with. Um, I guess being hunted like they are in the cornfield, running through the city where Taylor is a freak. Um, and just a lot of the, uh, just some of the really good scenes, like that when something's revealed, it's like dun dun dun. It has that kind of feel to it. Uh, very much like a Twilight Zone episode. Yeah, the music's very chaotic, very percussive. I don't think I'd want to listen to it apart from the movie. I don't know if that would really work. But, uh, it, it is tied very well into the images. It, it would sound, you know, when you remove it from the movie, it would probably sound like experimental ambient music. Actually, you know, it's, it's really funny. Listen to the chasing through the town when Taylor escapes. Listen to it with your eyes closed. It'll blow your mind. It'll blow your mind. No, well, because it's like, it sounds like a regular monster movie, except when the little kid in the church uh, says, Look, Ma, a man! And I do like, I like the ape eulogy. The ape eulogy is pretty damn hilarious. But when you don't... Well, all, all the things yeah. about ape society are, are, are both funny and pointed at the same time. Yeah. Like when those three orangutan chancellors, you know, somebody is saying something that might be considered uh, heretical, and they do the see no evil, hear no evil, speak no evil pose. Right, but before we get to the apes, so the beginning of the movie, as we mentioned, the three astronauts, Taylor, Landon, and uh, Dodge, crash well, land. Well, let's be fair, there is a there is a female astronaut. Oh, you just hear the Yeah, yeah, she doesn't survive the journey. She's dead from being violated so many times on the trip over. I like oh. how, oh God. See, I like they actually talk about her being their Eve and three able, lusty men. And the whole quote there by Taylor is really, makes me like think like, God, yeah, she's just an object. She could have been a, the most brilliant scientist that they had, but yet they just use her as a sex object. Well, the first half hour in the film has almost no dialogue, or any of the dialogue is inconsequential. Well, yeah, you exploring this planet. You don't see any apes till 32 minutes into the movie. Which they never do today, and which they didn't do in the uh, uh, remake or whatever you want to call it. Well, they yeah. couldn't wait to show us apes in, in the remake. I, mean, I just think that's fascinating that the older movies really took their time to set things up. And even, I mean, the name of this movie is Planet of the Fucking Apes. And, and also, yet, people who had seen the trailer would have seen the gorillas on horseback, they would have seen a whole bunch of the stuff. I mean,. Well, that's something I love about this mu this movie is like you know if if you because uh, like when I stumbled upon it I believe I stumbled upon it after the title card before any apes were shown, but it's easy to get lost in and and you do get you do get this feeling that you're exploring an alien environment with them and everything they discover is a surprise and is a discovery like when they find those pelts oh god a sign of civilization but what kind of civilization and everything is just revealed and when the apes finally do show up. When they find that group of humans in the, in, in the fields, when the apes show up to capture the humans, it is such a complete shock. It, 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 you really feel what's going go, what's going through uh, Taylor's head. Yeah, especially the first shot when you see the apes on horseback. They're number one. They're gorillas. 
which you automatically think of strength, you think of aggressiveness, um, you think of big lumbering creatures on horseback. In the book, the best part about it talks about um, the apes having both leather gloves on their hands and their feet. Now, how much is how much do you think the movie is intended to reflect uh, race? As far as the ape standing in for blacks, or that's something I sort of noticed a lot while watching this time. Or maybe I'm reading into things that aren't there. No, no, you absolutely, you totally, you totally got it right. Um, well, I don't. There's you know, I, talk about the quota system. Well, well, I don't think you can draw direct parallels between the ape breeds and any different human races or cultures. But it, I think I think that is something important. They, that, you know, that they put in there. I mean, this is. This is a society where just because of, you know, the, the, the color of your apish hide just determines so much about your place within the society. Which wait, but, but that's the same about that's the same about racism on on our side of the planet. What where no, that, that, that's what I'm saying. I'm just saying you can't draw a direct parallel between any one type of ape and any one type of person. Oh, I see what you're saying. So the Jews are the chimpanzees. Oh, no, Lord. <laughs> I think technically, if I mean, if you go by the real thing, the the orangutans are the power holders. The gorillas are the ones that they let go out to be killed in wars and such. Um, so they're obviously black. Oh, Lord! Chimpanzees are the scientists. Thrasher, well, I think they're the technicians. They're they're the people who who. who do the jobs that require technical skill. That just includes science and engineering. I'm gonna I'm gonna draw this note Thrasher, think about Vietnam. Oh no, I am thinking about Vietnam, but, but the Vietnam imagery doesn't really enter in until the second film, Beneath the Planet of the Apes. No, 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 but I'm talking about the, the race relations. Um back when they were forcing black men to go into war <laughs> well, they when they were in equal rights back home. But well, we're, they were forcing everyone to go to war. The draft targeted everybody. But you had a lot of urban black youth in the Vietnam War, and well, that is true. And I mean, like the white was from same rights as regular whites back home. I'm just saying that at the time, they, those were the people that they were forcing into war, even though they didn't have rights. Well, that's also what these guerrillas are good for. They're good for the aggressiveness. And you'll see in the later films, they always kind of fit that standard of being the, the warrior cast. It's a caste system. But, but, well, that, that, that's true. But, you know, are they naturally adept at that, or are they just acting out the role that society is dictating towards them? Is it a self-fulfilling prophecy? Well, of course, of course the gorillas make better soldiers. All the soldiers are gorillas. Ah, uh, see, I like your logic. That's... Okay. I got it. That's one of the theoretical questions. Ah, okay. Or possibly hypothetical. Mm. Or allegorical. Oracle. Mathematical. <laughs> Alphabetical. But simple than quadratical. Apological. Apol- I like that, apological. Let's just go with that. Um, that would be primatological. Planet yeah. of the Apes is apological and good night. <laughs> Oh, that's all the most. It's like when Walter Winchell was about to review the movie. <laughs> we shall never, never surrender. No dirty apes. Attention, Mr. and Mrs. Ape City and all the ships at sea. So in front of the <laughs> apes, Charles Winston has a beard, he has a butt, and he has a rifle. Good night. Well, actually, there's something I want to talk about. Because um, in the book, the society is, is present-day society. All the apes have the same technology. They have some things that are a little further back, and some things that are more advanced. But they do have this. They do have the same level of technology that the guy from Earth, uh, Ulysses, he leaves Earth on this date. He comes to this planet, and they have the same technology that they would have back on Earth at his date when he left. It was a post-industrial society. Well, I mean, exactly. in, the, in the movie, they're not complete like a. Cavemen, so to speak, they have guns. Nope, they, they ride are. horses and armor. They have guns, but they don't have any uh, huge buildings. They don't have any. Um, they have some interesting architectural technology, but 
it almost seems very Roman-esque. I'm basing that mostly on the way that they had their steps in amphitheaters. Um, they don't have... They don't need an industrial revolution because they can capture humans and force them to do brute labor. Yeah, but even then, you trust humans. Why would you trust an animal to do uh, brute labor? Because they because they can be easily trained when put to the lash. Mm, to push things, but I don't think they can be trained to like do. I don't know, putting nuts to bolts and stuff like that. No, no, that's what that's what the chimpanzees would do. Uh, oh, but like they, they don't need they don't need to invent the steam engine to run their mills because they can just have a bunch of humans on a crank or a treadmill. Yeah, but you can just say the same for us. We don't need horses to do that anymore because we have advanced to a certain level where we can use steam. Well, that's because the steam engine works so much better. Yeah, but remember that, that you know we that, that in our own in, industrial revolution, you know they're they're they're. Well, you're going to have the, the visionary who says, well, there's, there's got to be a better way. So the humans right. all crash on this mysterious planet. Well, no, they don't crash. Their spaceship crashes. <laughs> <laughs> they, don't, they don't just fall from the sky. It crashes into a lake. Has a, has a dangerous and sudden reentry. Yeah, this isn't Planet of the... This isn't a Howard the Duck here. Oh, this God. Yeah. Their spaceship hits a lake, so they have a water landing. And then they begin to sink, so they get out on a raft. Um, they find that this land they're in, uh, the nitrogen levels are too high. They can't; nothing would grow. So they think automatically this planet is not. There's nothing on this planet. They get out of this lake, and they find within, I guess, what uh, about 20, 22 minutes. They're walking in complete desert until they see the pelts. Yeah, they, they see those those pelts strung up. Now, what are the pelts? Are they are they meant to be? They say they're scarecrows, but are they apes scarecrows or are they human scarecrows? Well, you know that's the thing that's always confused me about like you know what what is the surface of of, of the pelt? And the only like it could be a scarecrow because there's there's no crops really that it's protecting. Um, I can only think that it's got to be a territorial marker. Yeah, I, I've always thought it's been something that has marked the borderline of the Forbidden Zone. So is it keeping people in or people out? Well, you know what? Here, Here's a theory. Because I, I would say the pelts don't look human. But they don't, but they look like, like they're cut off of something humanoid, and that can only mean apes. So I'm wondering, did humans make those? Could be. It's a big uh, planet out there. Now, admittedly, we do learn that it's not just apes and humans on the planet later on in the series, so perhaps it's yeah. one of those other forces. You know, we can use a retroactive continuity to say that. But I, I've often wondered, did the humans make, did, did some very smart a human make those scarecrows? Because, mm. again, what's really interesting with the, what even Azira says um, is that the humans even though they seem very animalistic in this society, there's no reason they, there's no biological reason why they can't speak. But that, yeah. um... Yes, they have vocal cords, they have a, a, a speech center, a developed speech center of the brain. They, they have all the equipment needed to have a language, but for some reason they apparently don't. Hmm. Let's talk about when they, they actually get to a place that isn't the desert, isn't just a forbidden zone, I guess. Um, they find a small stream, they find a waterfall, they immediately get naked and dive in. I'm sure well, you feel gross after being in uh, hibernation for several years in their spaceship. Actually, that is a good point. I just think they want the fresh water and just something, be something to do with They have such a grim attitude, it's just sort of a moment of fun. Uh-oh, but think about that, then somebody comes and steals their clothing. Ooh. Oh! Yeah. They see uh, sort of these uh, very primitive humans with the clothing, right? Yeah, they are clothed. So here's another question. In the book, for decency's sake for the movie, I'm betting that's why they were clothed. In the book, they're stark naked. Hmm. Now, well, think, you, about, it, think about if Jane Goodall had gone into the wild and saw monkeys with britches. Well, it would change everything we thought we knew about primatology. Hmm. 
Then what can we assume about these humans? They do have something on their body covering their nakedness. Well, I, I'm I sure if it was ever brought up, I'm sure the apes would assume that the humans were just mimicking apes and trying to cover themselves up. Mm. Oh, look at the cute trick they've learned. Ha, ha, ha. Just like monkey smoke. But not as funny. Or tragic. <laughs> they smoke the finest pipe weed shipped direct from Hobbiton. Now, of course, another possibility could be that those that the humans didn't make those clothes themselves, they could have scavenged old ape clothes and bits of fabric. True. Could be. I mean, they're found in a ape crop of corn. I mean, they are thieves, and they're even called that. Well, not long after finding these, not long after finding these humans, they are surprised by the uh, gorilla warriors on horseback which fire net which uh, toss nets to capture humans how about that horn the sound of that horn is so frightening and wicked oh it's an intense scene oh yeah so you really don't know what's going on the it's also just cruel some of those people getting you know getting you know just like lassoed around the neck and dragged off that is harsh and that stunts must have been dangerous but again, that's what that's what we do to some creatures. That's how we hunt sometimes. I mean, and then once they once some of the humans get to the edge of the uh, cornfield, they're they're just done down. We see a bunch of them hanging from a trellis near the end of the hunt. And it's like worth... It's like like rabbits even. It's worth noting at this point, Taylor gets shot in the throat, and the astronauts in the beginning are all sort of split up. You're not really sure what's happening. They're systematically separated. Yeah, they're separated, and Taylor wakes up in his um, cell. And it's sort of jail. Well, I guess a cell is where you put a prisoner. This would be like a, this would be just like, like a, a cage, a pen. Yeah, a pen would be the best word, I think. I mean, he is, he is... At least, he's bandaged up, but he, he's not able to speak. And every time he tries to, the apes laugh. Because they, they think he's just mimicking them. They, well, think, they think he's just making silly animal noises. Like when we see a monkey doing anything that we do, they go, oh, silly monkey. He's been trained to do that. There's no cognitive uh, knowledge. There's no, he doesn't know what he's doing. He's just trying to mirror us. And that is like the, that, that is what he has to face throughout so much the, that that uh, the second quarter of the movie. He's just trying to display his intelligence, but always getting the reaction. Oh, what a clever pet you have, Zira! I mean, it's such an interesting combination of genres you have in this film. It's science fiction. You have action. You have courtroom drama. That's actually kind of cool. Yeah, I didn't think about that. But yeah, you do have courtroom drama. You have somebody trying to plead their case of why they're not a mutant. Or, and even, he's even, it's even proposed that that he was created by Zira and another scientist would mess with his brain, mess with his vocal cords to make him be able to talk, which he does get the ability to talk long after. But before does he gets the ability to talk, he's in this cell, and uh, one of the chimpanzee scientists, well, he Zira... Well, get the ability to talk, his well, vocal cords, he cords heal, starts yeah. speaking. <laughs> He gains the ability. Yeah. Um, but as he's in the cell, one of the chimpanzee scientists, Zira, who was a, a woman and a scientist, which I think must have been a big deal at the time, even though she was a chimpanzee, she... Uh, and the only thing worse than ape law is ape sexism. Played by Kim Hunter. Let's talk about the actors and actresses as well. There's a lot of them. I only know Kim Hunter from the Planet of the Apes films. Yeah, I had never seen her in anything else. But I like her voice. I mean, you can't see what she really looks like. But the way they have her hair and the the, the makeup even looks feminine on her. And I'm guessing that was probably a conscious choice. It wasn't just a whole bunch of, um, I guess, uh, not, what do you call it when you make a lot of something? Mass-produced? They didn't make a lot of mass-producing of the uh, chimpanzee masks that all look the same. I think they did with the gorilla masks, correct? Oh, you know, 
you know where you would have seen uh, Kim Hunter? Hmm. She was Stella in A Streetcar Named Desire, Marlon Brando. In the, I've never seen the movie version. She was also blacklisted as part of the uh, House of Un-American Activities. Really? Yeah, she was one of the names given by uh, during the McCarthy era. era. The direct, in fact, the director... No, never. <laughs> wow. That's very sad. And she lived till 2002, but uh, the most recent thing she's been in that people might have seen is Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil. Who should play that? I've seen that. She plays Betty Hardy. I don't know who that... I tried to watch that movie and couldn't get through it. I found it very turgid. She has an amazing voice that comes out of this monkey mask, and it's, it's bloody brilliant. Well, she just show she does a great job of showing such concern for how humans are treated, how everyone is treated. Very. Uh, Before well, she's like, she's, she's like Jane Goodall. She she develops a real emotional connection to the creature she studies. I love how she gives it gives him his name, uh, Bright Eyes, because he has he has a spark of intelligence, which in the book, he is able to speak. At the first, he's able to speak the first time he comes around. There's no damage to his neck. So I gotta wonder why did the studio or Rod Serling, whoever actually wrote it in the script, why do you think they made him mute for a good hour? Well, it turns out he can talk an hour into the movie, but um, for this amount of time, I I would suspect it was probably Serling. Um, I, you know you've. It, it would almost be too much of a shock for a talking human to show up in this, you know, in, in, in this environment. They need him to not be able to speak long enough for him to develop that emotional connection with Zero. Mm. I mean, even if, if she saw a human, a human speaking right off the bat, she might be freaked out. But because she's able to, to empathize with him and get that emotional connection, it doesn't come as so much of a shock to her. And it does... Uh, it, does mean that she's they've already earned each other's trust and can then start interacting on an intelligent level. It also helps the audience identify because you don't know what the hell is happening at this point in the movie. He's woken up and all these apes are all around him and chimpanzees and so forth. And because he can't speak, he's forced to really listen to what the apes will say. And you as the audience really have to listen to what the apes are talking about to try and figure out what's going on. You're in just as a confused situation watching it as uh, Taylor is not being able to speak Hmm. in the beginning. There was one nice thing about that is because he can't speak, he can't ask questions, and as a result, no time is lost with exposition. But the whole time he's also trying to communicate that he can communicate. He he actually grabs at um, uh, the the pen and paper that, um, that Zira has. And he tries spelling out a word in um, the dirt when he's put into, I guess, the exercise pen. Yes. And of course, who uh, when he's it gets in a fight with a man who is another inmate, I guess, another creature, uh, and they get into a scuffle. Of course, Doctor Zayas makes sure that the writing on the ground is completely scuffed out by his own foot. Because he knows the terrible secret, and has an orthodoxy to protect. Well, let's let's can we talk a little bit about Doctor Zayas? Yeah, let's go along. We're getting further in. They thought I would Doctor Zayas, Doctor Zayas, Doctor Zayas, Doctor Zayas, Doctor Zayas, Doctor Zayas, Doctor Zayas. Can I play the piano anymore? Well, of course you can. Well, I couldn't before. Oh goodness! Thank you, thank you, Macaroni. Uh, but he was played. But uh, Dr. Zayas was played by uh, Maurice Evans. I'm guessing, um, who was the actor you said before did the screen test? Uh, it was... Edward uh, G. Robinson. Edward uh, G. Robinson. I'm betting he was supposed to play Dr. Cornelia. Uh, Dr. Cornelia. What do you think? That would make sense. I mean, I think the reason why they he wouldn't do it is he didn't want to spend all that time with the makeup. No, he died. Oh. He died before they could start principal photography on on the eight. Oh, there's that. Now, before then, I guess he did a whole bunch of um, uh, Shakespearean stuff. He did a whole bunch of um, yeah Shakespearean plays. He did uh, Oedipus, um, Macbeth, The Tempest. Um, he did 
uh, uh, he did Hamlet. Um, he, it seems like he had done a bunch of movies. Oh, he even did Caesar, which is funny, for the General Electric Theater. I'm just going down his list of things, and he's done so much Shakespearean film. And he's got such a really, his voice is so cool in this. It has that timber, that commanding voice of, of a Shakespearean actor, of a king. And he's put in this position of power as an orangutan. And you feel in the way he slopes his body and the way he kind of looks and looks away. It, it's really makes the character very powerful, especially when he's being evil. But it's he's also a very subtle evil. I mean, Dr. Zayas wants to... He doesn't, he's not just looking after his own means. He wants to sort of protect the ape society at large. He wants to... He's been keeping a secret for a long time. He doesn't want anyone to find out what the secret is. Well, yes, he has an orthodoxy to maintain. Uh, he, he fears what might happen to ape society if it ever did learn the, the complete uh, recorded history of its world. And I love what's pointed out. He is the head of the science council as well as the keeper of the faith. So both in this is an argument for the separation, really, of science and faith. But then also what's wrong with the society, maybe, is that faith prevents further scientific knowledge because if it goes against the established faith of the scrolls, it is therefore uh, higher, um, uh, heresy. Well, you know what it's very, uh, very much uh, like? It's, uh, it's uh, like Sir Isaac Newton. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, back, in, you know, back in his day, <clears throat> you know, uh, uh, back in his, his day, uh, if you were going to, he, he became, you know, he, he became a priest uh, in the Anglican Church uh, because to be a to be a, a dean at Cambridge, you had to also be, an, or you also had to be ordained. And so, you know, certain high positions you had to have both social standing and ecclesiastical standing. And I, I think it's a similar thing that's going on on the Planet of the Apes. It's not a coincidence that he's both in charge of the science council and he's, you know, an, an, an elder theologian. I suspect, you know, the head of the science council has to be an elder theologian. After and after all, if, if it wasn't, how were they able to keep the secret of Forbidden Zone for so long? And again, the, before the uh, uh, quota system was uh, abolished. I'm guessing that the orangutans really ran everything. You don't have any chimpanzees or gorillas in higher positions. Uh-huh. Well, anyway, I guess we can mention that briefly here. So, Planet of the Apes was popular, as you mentioned earlier, had all those films. And they had a TV series called Planet of the Apes and a animated series called Return to the Planet of the Apes. Yes. Is that right? Yeah. Yes, they did. And the, uh, the animated series take some elements from the the films and tells some of the same stories in, in some respects but the apes are more like in the book where they have a, a contemporary technology or even a futuristic technology they have kind of a world war ii level of technology with you know fighter planes and things like that but actually what are the guns they're not ak-47s um are they, they're carbide i know that well they could be ak-47s i mean those things don't break they could have survived so towards the end of the film, well, we mentioned there's a, a big trial scene with... Um, well, to defend himself, because they want to know, is he a mutant? What kind of mutant is he? Where do the rest yeah, they of the... Yeah, just kind of assume he's either got to be trained or a freak, a mutant. He can't be a representative of humanity. He has to be something outside of, of mankind. And they keep denying his him being able to speak, because... Number one, they don't want to hear him speak because that's too freaky. And also, he he has no rights under ape law. He has absolutely no he has no rights. It's very much like an Asimov tale. Even he just replaced the human with a robot. Uh, this thing that is new to them has no rights because they haven't ever thought. It's never popped in their heads that there should ever be laws concerning these things because they're not intelligent enough 
and they're not independent enough that we should care. Well, obviously there are some laws to regulate human behavior, but they're probably like you have to pick up after your humans leaving. And, oh, and pets cannot, uh, they can't be used as pets because of one of the scrolls saying, and he brought him into his house and tied him to a tree, and there his children made sport of him. Something about that. And, like, it's like, but as we found out, humans cannot be kept as pets. They're too unruly. Because there might be a society to prevention of cruelty to humans. Which it seems is what Zira is part of that kind of movement. She is a veterinarian who cares very deeply for these creatures. Because in them, she does see some kind of spark, but until Taylor, she doesn't think that these things will ever manifest. I mean, even her fiancé, Cornelius, played by the awesome Rodney McDowell, He's found things that show that humans could be more, but at the same time, he's so frightened by the power of Dr. Zayas and the councils and all that stuff. End of the revelation itself. Yeah, because it is heresy. It's like, well, this goes against everything we've learned. I can't be right, because if I'm right, then what does that say about us? I mean, it's the idea, like, we evolved from humans, and yet there are humans still here, so what does that mean? It's the same thing with us, and, oh, God, and the right, forgive any, forgive me if you if you have this thought, but I hate people who say, we can't be evolved from apes, because we still have apes. Well, to be fair, we didn't evolve from apes, we share a common ancestor with the apes. Yes, exactly, that's the point, that's the cool point. Is that there, in this movie? It is present, presented before we get the whole, the whole theory that something came before ape society, something else that was as highly, if not more, established and advanced. Well, you know, I guess we all we ought to talk about at least one iconic scene. We've got to talk about that. Get your paws off me, you damn dirty apes! And we just did. Oh, no! It's true. When he escapes, uh, if we talk a little bit about the escape, uh, a wild man is, is goes through the town. It's it's quite horrifying for the eight people. Well, it would be like if a gorilla escaped from a zoo, and they, they they react the way we would react. It's like that story in the news not too long ago, where a woman was keeping a uh, monkey as a pet, and the monkey got loose and tore her neighbor's face off. Yeah. <laughs> but to be fair, it wasn't torn off, it was torn apart. Yeah. Uh, and that woman later went on to be exploited by Oprah for cheap, cheap pathos on her show. Mm. Oh, so Oprah was the monkey that ripped her face off? No, no. O- Oprah was the media giant who metaphorically ripped her dignity off on her uh, TV show. I see. Yeah, I mean, no, that line is very iconic, and at this point, in the film, well, after the uh, tribunal, after the tribunal, which we talked about, they mention a lot about the Forbidden Zone, which is a place that contains all these secrets that Dr. Zayas has been hiding. And Taylor really mans up and gets himself a gun and gets on the back of the horse with uh, Nova out to discover what this big secret really is. Now, Nova's part is really quite small. Well, she doesn't say anything. She's played by Linda Harrison, who was... Um, gorgeous. Gorgeous. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Very much like uh, Bridget Bardot or... Um, oh, God. Barbara who is Ella, Jane, Fonda? Jane Fonda. Yeah. Or Raquel Welch. Oh, God, yeah. She has, like, like, a, she has a softness, and there's a bunch of parts where, like, she has to basically kind of mime her emotions, because there is frustration in her brow at certain times. There's confusion... There is love. She kind of wants the male, played by uh, Charlton Heston. Well, um, she has a much bigger part in the second movie. But she's also, she's a primitive. Um, yep. She is unable to speak. She's unable to communicate. And, of course, she doesn't understand when Charlton Heston speaks. Um, it's actually quite frightening. At one point, she covers his mouth. Um, it's the idea that he's able to speak and thus is also like the captors who are able to speak and, and that's character 
they probably just make him seem a bit alien and a bit terrifying. Yeah. But, and then, of course, uh, there's, there's also that possibility that you know, maybe she also wants him to communicate without wor- words the way her people do. Maybe that way they can understand each other better. Mm-hmm. Right. So they go to the Forbidden Zone, and what do they find? Well, there's there is that one, well well first they there there are some there are lots of hints lots and lots of hints aside from stuff that gets dropped from those forbidden scrolls and aside from like that uh, like when they find that human doll and it's a human doll can talk well but see there there you have the whole thing of him uh, of Cornelius who is an archaeologist in the movie a dirt digger as he's called. And he has these theories that there are things buried beneath the strata, basically like a real archaeologist, trying to find out what came before. And he finds all these really cool artifacts, including a... It's later identified by uh, the tailor that it's a heart valve replacement uh, pacemaker, uh, spectacles, false teeth, and then the doll. The idea is that the doll, no ape child would take the care to dress a doll like an ape would be dressed. Well, yeah, it, it's, 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 and what, what ape child would have a human doll that talks? It should be an ape doll that talks. So well, we don't know it talks until, of course, it gets dropped and says, Mama! Mama. And in addition, throughout the whole film, you have yeah. lines of dialogue that are... In a way, it's a clever child. <laughs> That. And, and yet, it's a piece of technology we have. Hmm. And yet, you have a lot of uh, lines of dialogue throughout the film that are human expressions that just have the word ape substituted in them. Oh, yes. Some of which can be very funny, but you could also see that as hints. The, the ape's new suit. Yeah. Well, again, it's, it's, it's kind of a mirror of our own society. And like the book, it's an allegory, or it's a dystopia as allegory. It's trying to teach us things about our own society by saying, oh, if it wasn't us on the receiving end, or if it was... No, that's, that's a metaphor, not an allegory. Well, you no, it's not an allegory for why things are bad, no? It's, it's a metaphor. It's a metaphor. An, 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 allegory, an allegory is almost like word replacement. Yeah, you replace human with ape. But then it would be just like our society. It's not just like our society. It's a metaphorical reflection of our society. This movie has one of the most famous endings of all time, where Taylor and Nova are galloping their horse down the shore, finding, as Dr. Zayas puts it, their destiny. Only to see the remnants of the Statue of Liberty at the end of the beach. And he gets off his horse... Gets falls to his knees, can't believe what he's seen, what he's seen, and says, "We finally did it, you maniacs! You blew it up! Damn you! God damn you all to hell!" I think I'll just put in the actual quote instead of my awful reading of that. Well, I thought that was brilliant, Matt. You can do impersonations. That had all the that had all the passion of <laughs> on the beach. But damn you! Know, you. Damn you all the hell! No, we're not doing Christopher Walken, does it? How about Woody Allen? Do Woody Allen! As we, if you were we, doing... We finally really did it, you maniacs. You blew it up. Damn you. God damn you all the hell. Do I believe in God? I, I, I don't even know. <laughs> yeah, he wouldn't get philosophical. Here's the funny thing about that. What if this planet... What if this planet did have its own society that built a Statue of Liberty that looks vaguely like ours? But no, but you see, it... It didn't. It didn't, because that's what I love about this film. Very few science fiction films actually take into account relativity. This film does, and that's what I, I love about it. Uh, the ship, you know, their their ship didn't actually get to its intended destination. It ended up coming back to Earth, but because of the velocity in which it was traveling, not much time took put passed on the ship, but hundreds, thousands of years passed on Earth, which is where they find themselves. They still went into hibernation. So technically, it could have been even longer on their ship, and thus even longer outside of their ship in our solar system. 
Yes. But this is one thing that I think is fascinating because that is the Statue of Liberty. That means this whole movie takes place on Manhattan Island. Yes. Except that, you know, due to, you know, a, a horrific climate change brought about by uh, by nuclear war, as, as Heston's speech implies, that, you know, the sea levels change, you know, obviously receded, and Manhattan Island is now much, much bigger. The, um, so you said the ending of the book was different? Um, the ending of the book is different. I'd like to talk about the end of the book once we actually get to the uh, the Tim Burton remake. I see. Okay, so that'll be at the end. Oh, that's the a good idea. Yeah, all right. Um, yeah, yeah, watching this film again, I was just really impressed by how well it, it held up. And Oh, yeah. Well, it's a I have the... intelligent film. I have the uh, six-disc version. It's called the Legacy Box Set. Oh, nice. So and... why, why six? Because uh, the sixth disc has um, a whole bunch of extras called Behind the Planet of the Apes. Uh, it's got the Behind the Conquest. And it's like Behind one of the other ones. And they're all called Behind. Um, but they have little, there are little things that have a uh, little documentary and some unseen footage, um, some makeup tests. I think the makeup test for Edward yeah, G. Robinson is on there. Um, but yeah, there's just a bunch of little special things on the sixth disc. But uh, where was the... Oh, but I wanted to talk about the... You said it happens in New York, right? If, yeah. If, if, we're, if we're actually... Cause, when there's a scene with the subway station in the second film... Exactly. I was about to say, Beneath the Planet of the Apes, that fits so well. Oh. I didn't even think about that. I was thinking, oh, maybe the blast just blew. It could have blo- blown the... Washed <laughs> up ashore. And to wherever, um, but in the book, in the book there are no, there are no marks on the planet that would, there are no landmarks that would be rem, rem, reminiscent of Earth. So there's no way the guy could ever mistake Soror for Earth. Whereas this way, there are, there Will's right, there are a bunch of little little snapshots, little things that, oh, we get sort of a clue that maybe this is, but this is the big in-your-face M. Night Shyamalan uh, twist. Well, you know what? To, to be fair, uh, I don't want to call this a twist ending. The, this is this is a revelation ending, but it's not a twist ending. A, a twist ending has to feel like it's coming out of nowhere but everything in the movie is leading up to this. Everything in the movie is whispering, this is probably Earth. And I it's the Statue of Liberty that, that really hits it. But it's not a twist. I bet you, you should be expecting this sort of revelation. People coming out of the theater must have said to their date, oh my god, I can't believe it was Earth. And then the people in the line next to them going, "Oh." That's one thing I, with this movie, it, ending is such a pop culture moment that's been parodied in The Simpsons and... It's Space impossible Balls. not God to knows, know. Right, it's impossible not to know the ending walking into this film. And in fact, the, uh, the DVD and Blu-ray cover art is of Heston lying down screaming at the Statue of Liberty as the face of Cornelius, for some reason, looms in the background. It's a very weird... You know, it's a complete spoiler for the cover of the movie. Yeah, I can't stand that. I'm not gonna say I'm. I'm fortunate. I'm fortunate that when I saw the movie, I knew nothing about it, and I was shocked and horrified and delighted when I saw the Statue of Liberty because it. it I had no frame of reference for that scene, but now you know it's unless like this is one of the first films you see as a child. There's no way in hell you won't know the Statue of Liberty is coming because everyone's seen the Statue of Liberty. The only way that scene could have been better is if the head of the Statue of Liberty winked. Oh. Uh, <laughs> I think it would have been funnier. No, no, the statue, the mouth opens and it says, Surprise! <laughs> gotcha! No, what if the mouth opens and I says, Does anybody want a banana? Oh, God. No, <laughs> it's worse. It's like, even worse if it says, That's all, folks. Come see the next one beneath the Planet of the Apes. <laughs> Planet of the Apes will be back in beneath the Planet of the Apes. Imagine... If the actual, uh, if the Beneath the Planet of the Apes had 
previewed at the end of this movie like they did with uh, Back to the Future 3, playing uh, opposite uh, Back to the Future 2. You mean where Michael J. Fox plays an ape that shakes a lot? No, no. Wow. Wow. Wow, Matt. Oh, I, I saw the best picture ever. It's um, Michael J. Fox holding up a Poke counter and saying all of his Pokemon are at 100. Oh, right, because the new game came out with the pedometer. Yeah, and you, and you basically, it, you, if you go outside and run a bunch, it helps level up your Pokemon. It's based off one of those um, things where you shake it, and every shake equals a certain amount of energy. Yeah. Yeah. It's like that. He's disgusted because he's not saying anything. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's it's. Yeah, I guess I guess it's it's you know I, when it comes to to diseases and medical conditions, I would rather laugh with Michael J. Fox than at Michael J. Fox. Exactly. I like Michael J. Fox, and I really hated that I, I kind of snickered after like a minute of looking at the poster. Right. No, I was just thinking of Conan O'Brien. For some reason, it just makes because he's got red hair, and if this were an ape world, he'd be an orangutan. Man, he'd make a great orangutan. He would. Oh boy, have we ever you really seen think the Irish would be orangutans? Don't we? No, no, no. Well, wasn't there a joke where they put uh, Max Weinberg in monkey makeup? Probably. They probably <laughs> did. I mean, they've done Planet of the Apes jokes before. I'm remembering monkey makeup on Max, not on Conan though. They gave Max Weinberg so much shit. But... Well, they also, because, Matt, we were talking about it before, they did a uh, Saturday Night Live episode with Charlton Heston as the host. Um, and basically the intro to the show was that Charlton Heston fell asleep in his dressing room and he slept so long that monkeys took over. Yes, and he's captured and made to perform on stage. And all the apes in the audience just ask him questions about whether or not he's a mutant, and he's trying to explain what like about humans, the past of Earth. I'm not a mutant, but we do have a really great band, uh, Stone Temple Pilots. I mean, in Charlton Heston, despite um, you know he was a big uh, member of the NRA and a very macho presence, he was in a lot of science fiction films. I mean, not just yeah, Omega the apes. Man, Omega Man, Swirling Green. Soiling Crane? Oh, yeah. Exactly. Uh, beyond the Planet of the Apes? You know, no, because he's in a lot of dystopian nightmares. Yeah, he is. And, but, I mean, it was the late 60s, early 70s, around those times. You know, he had a lot of very dystopian views. Of the oh, the Rollerball, the original Rollerball, an amazing film from that era. Well, it's really interesting. You talk about dystopias. Almost everything was the result of nuclear... Uh, nuclear proliferation or, or even nuclear bombs going off anywhere, but it seems that like the idea behind this movie also is that where did all the humans go? Oh, they were wiped out by war. They were wiped out by the horror of the atomic bomb. Well, that's probably why we don't see any other New York landmark uh, or any Manhattan landmark is it probably all that leveled the powder in the war and the Statue of Liberty being, you know, on the periphery in that island survived most of the blast? Very true, could be. Also, what the statue is made out of, it's copper. Um, Which is afforded protection from radiation. Uh, do you have science to back that? And it would last 700... I don't, but I know those X-Mans fought on top of it. In X-Man, the movie. He's, he's got a point. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Um, anything else about this movie? I really enjoy Planet of the Apes. I, I really recommend everyone watch it. Fantastic. I think Will's oh, yeah. one of those movies that you should just, if it's on, just watch. Don't flip between channels. Just, just watch it. Yeah. You remember what we said earlier about the music being really chaotic and stuff? Mm. But on this movie, as I was doing dishes, because I've seen this movie several <laughs> times, but I can still see the dishes from where I'm doing them. And um, my cats were so unnerved by the music in the beginning. They started running around the apartment, howling. <laughs> That's funny. The people, if you have animals, don't have them in the same room. And for God's sake, whatever you do, don't let your pet ape see this either. <laughs> it will rise up. 
Well, no, to be, remember, though, there's that thing about the domesticated cats and dogs going extinct. But we don't get to that till the next ones. No, no, it's it's in the scrolls. Wait, did they talk? Wait, did they talk about it in the scrolls in the first movie? Yeah, there's there's like you know, uh, it's a, it's a part of the history that um that uh, Cornelius is pieced together. But yet they have horses. That they have what? Horses. horses. Well, yeah, horses weren't susceptible to the plague. It wiped out cats and dogs. I don't think that was mentioned until the fourth movie. It just could be right. Okay, um, so next episode we're going to watch the uh, sequel to Planet of the Apes, Beneath the... No, shit. It is Beneath oh, the Planet okay. of the Apes. I get it confused with the documentary. Beneath the Planet of the Apes. So until next time, this is Uncle Milkshake. Oh, and be sure to check out our website at www.sequelcast.com. Send us an email at sequelcast at gmail.com or visit the Twitter feed at twitter.com slash sequelcast. This is Uncle Milkshake. Roger. And Ulysses Morrell. Saying, whoop, whoop. If, if you're an atheist, you contact us. Throw your feces at the screen. <laughs> that, that works? No, wait, Matt, wait, wait. Yeah. I got it. Does anybody want a banana? Boing. Who left, who left these bananas on the stage? Does anybody want a banana? That was a complete accident, but then they turned into something in the episode. Can you tell us what that's from? Yeah. <laughs> you, you will listen to the next episode of the sequel cast because it is decreed in ape law.